Now the rest of the acts of... So we've got none of that. All right. 2 Kings chapter 13. Let's start in verse 1. <laughs> you know what's funny is Ryan texted me just now and she's like, I don't think the mic's on. And then just like dots. You're so fired. <laughs> Alright, well for those of you who are still watching for some strange reason, uh, we're in chat, we're in verse 8. You can read the rest of it yourself because it took me too long to cover everything to go back through it. Uh, refresh yourself on who all these J's are. Uh, you know, Jehu, Jehoash, Joash, the other Joash, all of them. Uh, good luck. Verse 8 says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, and all that he did in his might, which is the son of Jehu, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his stead. So Joash is the grandson of Jehu. Uh, Joash is This Joash is a different Joash than the Joash who reigned in Judah, for those of you who just now got ears. Uh, verse 10 says, In the thirty and seventh year, of Joash king of Judah began Jehoash the son of Jehoahaz to reign I know they used to have college level courses over this stuff in Bible college like you'd have to know each king you know know the years that he reigned you know where to find them in the Bible and everything yeah did you ever do that class Amanda you didn't do that one that was uh, that was a rough one Uh, and reigned 16 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked therein. And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did in his might, wherewith he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon his throne, and, jo and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Uh, so Joash had a son, Jehu's great-grandson. His name is Jeroboam. I know, I know. Because we've already had a Jeroboam once. So we'll call him Jeroboam II, I suppose. <laughs> it's not, you know, beyond the Cahoots game, it's not so much important to remember each individual king and their name. I think what's important to take away from this is the narrative, right? You, to, to notice the slow, declining spiritual condition of Israel, right? Because and the fact that they can't come up with original names for children. Well, that's probably something to note, too. But more importantly, I think, than that is the idea that they started off with good kings, right? Saul... He hated David and he wanted him dead. He did some terrible things to accomplish that, which he didn't do. Uh, but he cared about his people, right? Uh, he did some things. He, he went to see a witch in the forest of Endor to summon the spirit of Samuel, right? And that's a terrible thing for any king of Israel to do. But he, he cared about his people. He loved the Lord, you know. Uh, aside from some horrible atrocities, there were a lot worse kings Israel had. You know, then you have David. Oh, man, David. David was probably, arguably Israel's greatest king ever. Uh, up to date, before Jesus becomes king one day. 
But then from David, you have Solomon, wisest king ever. And then from Solomon, you begin to see Solomon's heart turn from the Lord because of his many wives. And he doesn't just worship God. He worships God, but he also worships Baal, and he worships Ashtaroth, and he worships uh, the golden calf, and all of these different, uh, the grove gods, and different so forth, and uh, the Egyptian gods from uh, many of his wives. And his heart turns from the Lord, and from there, you'll have a, a string of good kings, and then you'd have one king where it says he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you'd have another string of good kings, and then you'd have uh, another one that said he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, now that we're getting toward the end of Israel's history, we're getting toward the back of 2 Kings, we're starting to see one after another, he did that which was evil, he did that which was evil, he did that which was evil, and then every great once in a while you'll have one that did that which was good. So you notice the slow declining state of Israel. And can anybody tell me what started it all off? What got us down this slope? Or uh, not us, but Israel. What got Israel down this declining slope in the first place? Was it when Moses was on the mountain? No. They weren't quite a nation yet then. Was it when Ahab ran? No, it was a good bit before Ahab. Or Jeroboam. Was it uh, was it David when he uh, the woman on the roof? You're you're on the right track. I'd say you're one stop over. When let me give you a clue. What caused Solomon to turn his heart from God? We just said it. Many different wives. David married who? Sheba. Before that. He had, uh, he married Saul's daughter was his betrothed. Though he had to flee for his life before they could actually get married. And while he was on the run, uh, there was a man who was very cruel to David and his men. And uh, his wife came out and begged for his life, right? Well, through the course of time, he ended up passing away anyway. And David went and married his wife, right? So now that's his wife and he's married. And then after he becomes king of Israel, the first thing David does is he goes to Saul's daughter that was supposed to be his and meets with her. And she's got a husband and she's got a family. And he forces her to leave her family to live with him as a trophy. That he conquered Israel and he conquered Saul. And that is where all of Israel's troubles began. Because David had, I want to say, three wives. Saul had one wife. David had three wives, and his son took what he did in moderation and did it in excess and had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, and he began the tradition of worshiping multiple different religions at once. 
He started that tradition. Because wise, powerful King Solomon did it, it made other kings feel justified in doing it. Well, hey, it was good enough for Solomon. Goodness gracious. Surely it'd be good enough for me, right? Look at all Solomon accomplished. Why wouldn't I want to be like that? So he starts this tradition of worshiping other gods. And it begins with Solomon because it began with David and his wives. Right? And then the, the multiple different gods, it leads us into Jeroboam one generation later starting the uh, tradition of worshiping the golden calf. And all of this idolatry and all of this worship leads to one evil king after another, leading to the slow spiritual declining state of Israel, all because David and his weakness of women. It all started there. Hundreds of years before. There's something that people rarely ever even mention about David. We mentioned Bathsheba, and we talk about how he had his had her husband murdered so he could have her his uh, wife. And uh, it's it's a terrible thing, but that's all we ever mention. The polygamy of David caused Israel's downfall and eventual destruction. We sometimes think that the slightest things in our life they only affect us, right? I think, if I'm going to do this thing, I know I shouldn't do it, but it, I mean, it's not going to hurt anybody but me. And that's rarely ever true. The things we choose to do that we know we shouldn't do, they don't just affect us. They affect all the people around us. You've got somebody watching you. It might be a son or a daughter. It might be a niece or a nephew. It might be some kids you teach in a Sunday school class, but whoever it is, somebody's watching you. They're doing what you do because they think it's cool because you do it. And we choose to do the wrong thing. It doesn't just affect us. Israel had a legacy of evil kings. And I'm going to speed through these things real quickly uh, that we've just talked about. Uh, first of all, it said he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. The, the evil of Jehoahaz comes in three parts. Uh, the first of which we talked about. He followed the sins of Jeroboam, which was worshiping the golden calf. Romans 1 gives us greater detail about worshiping uh, creatures. Right? It says in Romans 1.23, And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Romans 1 teaches us about those that either change the image of God into something more palatable uh, in their minds, or remove God from their minds entirely. But why would they do this? Why would they remove God from their minds entirely? Well, Romans 1.28 tells us, that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And there's only one reason why someone would not want to retain the true knowledge of God, and it's because they want to do something that their heart is telling them that God doesn't want them to do. I want this for myself. I want to do this. I know in my heart 
it's not for me, it's not right, it's something I shouldn't do, but I want it, and every time I do it, with the knowledge of God in my mind, I'm going to feel shamed and guilty. So I'm going to start living without the knowledge of God in my life so I can continue to do what I want to do without feeling guilty. That's the only reason somebody would want to live without the knowledge of God. And when this happens, God doesn't move heaven and earth against us. He doesn't punish us into submission. He doesn't send a legion of angels to correct us. The Bible says he simply gives us over to what the scriptures refer to as a reprobate mind. This means that he lets us have the ignorance we choose. You want to be ignorant about God, he's not going to buck you on it. It's fine. You'd be ignorant about God because that comes with its own punishment. But that's also, that's the kind of God we worship. He doesn't force himself on you. He's not going to make you worship him. He's not going to make you think about him. But if you want to, you've never gone too far not to come back. He's always there with an open hand. So he followed the sins of Jeroboam firstly. Secondly, he said, which made Israel to sin. Jehoahaz, like Jeroboam before him, influenced God's people to sin. If there's anything worse than choosing to live without God in your life, it's influencing someone else to live without God in their life. That's what Jehoahaz was guilty of. He was guilty of driving people from the Lord. Right Now, there are people that don't go to church, don't read their Bible, don't believe in God, and they drive people from the Lord, and they're guilty of that. But did you know that there are people this morning that go to church every Sunday, that dress up just as nice as anybody else, they know all the Christianese, they know how to walk into the church, they know how to sound like a good Christian, and yet those people drive other people from the Lord so much worse than anybody else who would be outside of the church. The hypocrites. In Jesus' time, they were called Pharisees. They spent all day standing on street corners, praying out loud so everyone could hear them. I imagine they started their prayers something to the effect of, Oh, Lord. I thank you so much for their 20-minute prayer they go on. Look at me. Look at how spiritual I am. And those people drive other people so much further from the Lord than anybody else does. I was reading scripture last night. And I came across a verse where Jesus said, O ye lawyers, for you have stolen the key of knowledge and have not entered therein, and have hindered others from going in there at also. That word lawyers, it means uh, the, the legalistic crowd. They were experts of the laws of Moses. Not anything else about the books of Moses, but just the laws of Moses. And they would come at you with their list of rules. You know, these are those people in, in our independent Baptist churches. They say, all right, boys have to sit over here and girls have to sit over here. And... Uh, why are you not wearing a white shirt? You should only be wearing a white shirt. Is that not a Schofield Bible? You need to always be reading out of a Schofield Bible. Little dweebs like that. And they do more harm to Christianity than anybody else because they make it so boring. I talked about this last week. 
this book is a really exciting book. I mean, I know we just went over a lot of names and, and uh, statistics and stuff, but I mean, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about a king that invited everybody over to a party and then sent his soldiers in to cut their heads off. Right? Where he took the throne and all of a sudden uh, he says, I need all these heads in baskets on my front door. And he's got 70 baskets with 70 heads on his front doorstep. I mean, these are some really interesting stories. And it blows me away how some people can read the Bible like, uh, you know, like an accountant reading numbers out of a ledger. You know, it, it just blows me away, their ability to make it boring. And these people, these uh, stuffed shirt, legalistic, heads stuck up in the air, they do more harm to Christianity than anybody else. We have a sphere of influence around us. Uh, or as Hebrews 12.1 calls it, a cloud of witnesses. Some people's cloud is bigger than others. There's nothing wrong with that. Just because somebody has a bigger cloud of influence than you, doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. But the cloud of influence we do have, we should be careful how we lead them what they see us doing. The question then becomes, are we leading them to the great shepherd? Or are we leading them away from the great shepherd? And then the third part that made it truly atrocious was, it says, he departed not therefrom. Because it's a sad fact of life that we all, from time to time, fail to live up to that high and holy standard of Jesus. And fall into the mud pits of sin. But no matter how far we sink into that mud pit, the Lord is always ready with a stretched out arm willing to help us get out. You ever gotten stuck in the mud in your car? That is the absolute worst thing in the world because once you get stuck, you continue to try to hit the gas and spin your wheels. You know what you do? You just sink further into the mud. And it's just the, the just most frustrating thing ever because then what do you have to do? You're stuck in the mud. You got to get out and push. So you got to get one person in the driver's seat. The other person gets behind the car. And you got to push in that mud. Which if it's sinking the truck, imagine what else it's going to sink it. You're going to sink. And you got to push and try to get some traction for that vehicle while somebody else is slowly hitting the gas trying to get some traction. By the time you do get it out, you're probably covered in mud yourself. Right? Getting stuck in the mud, it's no fun. But sometimes that's what we do, right? In life, we get stuck in the mud. The mud of sin. The real tragedy then becomes that we often don't want to leave the mud pit. We're happy with our mud. We're happy with our stuck condition. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20 says, For if after they had escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse uh, with them than the beginning. And we can all picture somebody in our head who uh, had a problem. 
and then tried to better themselves from their problem, but then ended up falling back into their problem. And when you picture that person in your mind, you realize that the, when they fell back into their problem, they were 10 times as bad as they were before they tried to fix their problem in the first place. I had a friend, that used to, I used to have a friend that had a drug problem. And obviously I tried to help him come out of his drug problem. I tried to get him the proper help, but he wouldn't go get the proper help. He wouldn't talk to anybody but me. I tried to explain to him I wasn't qualified to help him, but he didn't care. You can tell with that sort of a thing, it's a half effort. They're not really invested. But I did the best I could for him. And uh, he was doing really well for a long time until all of a sudden he wasn't. And now he's 10 times worse than he ever was. That's what it's talking about here. Not necessarily drugs per se, but any kind of sin. Uh, for it had been better, it says in verse 21 of 2 Peter 2, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again. One of the many reasons I don't have a dog. They're disgusting. Their palate is disgusting. Yeah. And the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So I'm trying to wash a pig, in other words. You get that pig nice, shiny, clean, what's the first thing they're going to do? And go right back to that mud pit. Wallow in that mud again. That's what the Bible says we're like. We come to church. We listen to some preaching. We sing the old hymns. We get good and clean spiritually. And we go right back out into the world and fall right back into our mud pit. The Bible says it would have been better for us to abstain from such things. And then it talks about Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, and how he reigned over Israel. And the thing about Joash, uh, Jehoash was that he was guilty of all the same things as Jehoahaz, his father. Right? It, as it mentions him, it says literally word for word the exact same things about him as it did about his dad. Now this is amazing because it teaches us two specific lessons that we ought to learn from this. First of which is that fathers ought to do more than just teach their children about Jesus. They ought to lead them to Jesus by example. Your family, whether you're a father or not, your family ought to see you having a relationship with Jesus. They ought to see mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle with a Bible open from time to time. They ought to hear them praying more than just for three meals a day. They ought to see their examples living a life with Jesus. Not just teaching them about it, but showing them about it. The second thing this teaches us is that sons and daughters need to learn to live in the will of the Lord and not in the shadow of their parents. Jehoash comes along. His father was Jehoahaz. And he's living in the shadow of his father because his father too was king. And so he's trying to be as good a king as his dad was. He's trying to do the things that his dad would have done. And that's not his place. 
his place is to do what God wants him to do, not what his dad wanted him to do, or not what his dad would have done. And we must learn to be our own people. You can't be your mom. You can't be your dad. You are you. And you can't fill those shoes. You can only fill your own. Some people spend so much time trying to fill somebody else's shoes that they fail to fill their own shoes. We've got to learn to stop trying to be somebody else and be the person God saved us to become. And not live in the shadow of our own parentage. And then we see secondly and finally this morning is a final expression of God's power in verse 14. And it says, Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take a bow and arrows. And he took to him a bow and arrows. And he said unto the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrian in Aphek, till thou have consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him, and he said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And Elisha died. And they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass as they were burying a man that behold, they spied a band of men and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived. When he touched the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. This is not fiction. That actually happened. He revived and stood up on his feet. But Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. And the Lord was gracious unto them, and had compassion on them, and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them. Neither cast he them from his presence as yet. So Haziel, king of Syria, died, and Ben-Hadad his son reigned in his stead. And Jehoahaz, the son of Jehoahaz took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel. So we see the phrase, he smote thrice and stayed. And I want to talk about that real quick for a second because it's important. Joash made the same mistake many of us do. He stopped trying. He had uh, evidently a quiver full of arrows and a bow in his hand and the man of God told him to strike the ground. And he struck and he struck and he struck and he struck it three times and decided that was enough and he stopped. 
And that was his mistake. Because he should have continued to strike. He could have continued to grab arrows till there were no more arrows left to grab. He should have continued to do so till he was no longer physically capable of grabbing arrows. Finding victories in our Christian life is about persistence. It's about being persistent. It's about being stubborn with the devil and telling him over and over and over again, you don't get to beat me. You can knock me down, but I'm going to keep getting up and I'm going to keep trying again. I'm going to grab another arrow. I'm going to keep shooting. But because he tried three times and gave up, that's all the victory he was going to have in his kingdom. Perhaps he said to himself, three's pretty good. I've heard of a lot of kings that only had two arrows. I know of a lot of kings that only shot once. I know a lot of kings who didn't even pick up the bow. I think three is pretty good. But if he could do better, it wasn't nearly good enough. We can do better. We can keep grabbing arrows. We can keep trying until we get victory in the Lord. Find it... Uh, if you try once and give up, you'll never accomplish anything. Anything worth accomplishing is worth trying again and again and again until we get it right. If we want to see God answer our prayers, we have to keep asking and we have to keep trying. He also says that when, the, the, when Elisha was buried, it says when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. This is incredible and you can't not talk about this, right? Uh, but this was to remind Israel that even in their darkest of hours, God can bring life out of death. This was much like the great sadness felt by the disciples and Mary when their best friend and mentor was tortured and beaten and crucified before their very eyes. But then their sadness was quickly forgotten when a resurrected Savior stood before them. That God can take you in your darkness, He can take you in your despair, and He can remind you that He can bring life out of death. God has a tendency to give us our greatest victories in our darkest and most tragic hours. It has a tendency to be true. And then we see the phrase, the Lord was gracious unto them. Right? The Lord was gracious unto them, why? Somebody real quickly tell me why the Lord is gracious to him. Did it say there in verse 23? Was gracious unto them, had compassion on them, and had respect unto them because... He was uh, because of Isaac and Abraham. And exactly. Because of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If we had to lead a stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious group of people like Israel, we'd just pull our hair out. Sorry, Josh. It's understandable. <laughs> so you directly attack. Okay. We'll fuck this up. Promises are promises. <laughs> but the real tragedy becomes... Um... Oh, wait. I'm in the wrong part. When God looks on these people, these stubborn people, these stiff-necked people, these rebellious people, He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't get angry. He has compassion on them. He feels sorry for them. He feels bad for them. Why? Because God looked on these people and remembered the promise He made to His old friend Abraham. You know, kids have a tendency of looking like their dads. 
And I have a feeling that the Israelites had different features of Abraham about them. When God looks down upon them, he sees his old friend Abraham. And he looks down and he remembers the love and the friendship they had and the promise he made thousands of years ago to his friend Abraham about his seed. And he has compassion and forgiveness. Because he looks on them and he sees Abraham. And closing this morning, when God looks upon us, he doesn't see us as the stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious people that we actually are. Instead, he feels compassion for us. And he remembers the promises that he made for us to his beloved son, Jesus. That is our Sunday School lesson for this morning. We will be back at 11 o'clock.